Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And today we're going to continue our series through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 73 and spiritual recovery. Would you please join me now in prayer? Oh, Lord, what a, what a majestic text we have before us today in this psalm. It is a psalm that is going to challenge us, and, and not only with our own hearts and because of the, the way in which we so often live, but also, Lord, because of the culture in which we live in and the time in which we live in, where there is more material affluence, there is more of every single thing, as Solomon would say, under the sun. And yet, Lord, in Christ alone, our hope resides. Our identity resides not in the things of this life and our jobs and our possessions and the, and the things that, that we have that, that may even define us, but Lord, they reside in you. So, so Lord, as we look at this text now before us, may you remind us, may you stir us afresh by way of reminder, by way of instruction. And may you bring correction. And may you bring comfort to your people. That we might be instructed, that we might be equipped, and that we might walk in a manner worthy, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, of the calling that that we've received because of Christ alone. So Lord, help us as we open this text now. This is your word. Take it, Lord, and plant it deep within us that that we might know you more and walk in your ways all the more, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, King Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. May God bless the preaching of his word and the hearing of the word of God. Psalm 73 says this, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pains until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts throughout the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I I would have betrayed the generation of your children. 
But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to room. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. <coughs> when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and arrogant, I was like a beast towards you. And nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand, you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory, with whom I have in heaven but you. And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far off from you shall perish, but you put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. This is the reading of God's holy, precious word. This psalm begins with a simple statement in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a parallelism at work here. This is common in Hebrew poetry. Those who are pure in heart is a qualification or an amplification for the statement Israel. That is, God's true people are those whose hearts are tuned to him. They're tuned to the fact that the Lord is always good. And this, says Asaph, is a simple truth. The rest of the psalm is dedicated to showing how hard it is to believe this truth and to be content that knowing God is good in the midst of all of our lives. Who can't relate to that? I mean, we all can, especially in the current climate in which we're living in. And yet, according to this superscription, the author of this psalm is Asaph the Levite, whom David placed in charge of the musical worship before the ark in Jerusalem, which we see in 1 Chronicles 16.5 and 1 Chronicles 16.7. Asaph was a prominent figure and no doubt a deeply spiritual man. And yet, despite these qualifications, his psalm records his ascent into a discontentedness with God and with the providence of God. And then a spiritual recovery that not only restored him, it elevated him to one of the highest plateaus of spirituality in all the Old Testament. So we'll look first at the problem of discontentment. The English Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs understood Asaph's struggle. His 1648 spiritual classic, the rare jewel of Christian contentment, it offers a lengthy reflection on Paul's declaration in Philippians 4.11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And Burroughs defined contentment as that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fiery disposal in every condition. Another Puritan, Thomas Watson, also spoke helpfully about contentment when he said, We glorify God by being contented in the state in which providence has placed us. We give God the glory of his wisdom when we rest satisfied with who he carves out to us. Now, most of us, however, find it hard to be content with the circumstances that God has given to us. 
Then we need to remember that God places us where he has need of us. We gather together on the Lord's day and then we scatter to our homes and then, you know, to our vocations and God places us where he has need of us. Nothing happens willy-nilly. In the providence of God, God orchestrates all history from beginning to end. And when we're not satisfied with God's provision, this is what's going to happen. We're, we're ultimately dissatisfied with God. Because the Bible does not promise us sunny skies and clear sailing, a life of ease and comfort, but quite the opposite. Scripture informs us that as God's people, we will be beset with trouble. In John 16, Jesus, in that upper room discourse, uh, starting at John 13, going to John 17, he says, in this world, in John 16, you will have trouble. And another example of this, Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. You see, because we are his children, the Lord gives us trials to strengthen our character and to draw us closer to himself. And since we have been told this, it is inconsistent for us to be discontented by circumstances or difficulty, but it's understandable why we do. And, and we need to be honest about this. However unreasonable our discontentment is, Scripture shows us that we have good company in our misery. The prophet Habit climbed into his watchtower to await God, God's justification for the woes he was inflicting on Israel. The, the prophet Jeremiah was a distinguished complainer. We see this in Jeremiah 27-18. Job had better grounds than we do for discontentment. He ex- exercised them vigorously. And yet here in Psalm 73, we have a great man like Asaph saying in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. The first section of this psalm runs from verses 2 to 15, verse 15. And Asaph here records uh, his descent into spiritual depression, beginning with envy towards the ungodly in verse 3, when he says, For I was envious of the arrogant. And, and what Asaph is marshalling is an impressive argument for his envy. He begins with two observations that cause him to resent God's rule over the affairs of his life. First, he says in verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And, and second, the ungodly seemed to lead happy and carefree lives. Verses 4 through 5. For they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And we could go on and on with examples and, and maybe you're even thinking of some that, that are being highlighted by the Holy Spirit right now in, in your life on ways in which you're prone to resentment. You know, we, if, if you go to the beach anymore, when, when I was in California, my wife and I lived, my wife and I often went to Santa Monica, and you just walk on the beach and you, and you see these immodest girls dressed scantily, and, and they seem to be getting rewarded on Instagram and with, with lots and lots of opportunities to show more and more and more. Uh, or maybe at your local church, you, you see this. 
and and these ladies are getting rewarded with a husband, with children, uh, with attention, with a house in the suburbs, with all they ever wanted. And meanwhile, these godly but perhaps even distressed women who dress modestly, they refuse to compromise sexually, and yet men didn't want them because they were not, you know, Instagram worthy and all of those things and getting attention in inappropriate ways. It happens, and it's galling. You know, who doesn't know a man who's stuck by their moral principles at work and what happened? They, they still lose their job. They get passed over for a promotion. They suffer professionally and even financially. What about ch- cheaters and connivers? Well, they get rewarded. They, they now have the powerful positions, the, luft, the lush office, the big salaries. And you might ask, that I, I've seen that. I've lived that, Dave. And you ask, how is that right? Well, Scripture depicts this very reality. A godly man such as Joseph can be sold as a slave by his brothers, and his father believes the deception they scheme to cover it up. This is a world in which righteous Lazarus can become a cripple and live in misery outside the gates of a pompous rich man who cares nothing for him. And, and Lazarus just lies there, dogs licking his sores, and then he dies. It, it is hard not to ask God what kind of world he's running. Is he in control? What kind of justice there is when this is all happening in, in our world but the answer is, is ours is a cruel and a cruel world. We live in a post-fall world. And things get worse, as if that wasn't bad enough. Aesop points out that the wicked exult in their villainy in verses 6 through 11, when he says, Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They say, How can God know it? Is there knowledge in the Most High? The unrighteous, they laugh at righteous, they mock their victims, they boast in the face of God. And yet we wonder why the lightning of God never strikes them down dead. Far from it, they, they win awards, they garner praise. We see that in Hollywood, don't we? We see that in television all the time, in movies, right? And people fawn over them while the righteous are despised. Now, imagine someone who commits a terrible crime, perhaps assault or even murder. They get off on a technicality. Imagine then how that victim feels, along with the victim's parents. The criminal boasts about it, taunting the victim. They even write a book. It becomes a bestseller. He laughs about the pitiful people who do good and trust in the Lord. Is there anything more galling than that? Perhaps something like this has happened to you, and you are embittered by it, as Asaph was. And Asaph was undone by envy for the success of the wicked. He was indignant over God's providential ordering. Today, he would watch reality television shows and even fume over the godless wealth that so many of them glamorize today. He would tune in to the Hollywood Awards show and seethe over the money and the glamour of those who prance about it in debauchery. And by, by thinking this way, what Asaph ended up doing was blaming God, and he found himself in a spiritual abyss. And Asaph reaches rock bottom in verses 13, 
or 12 through 13 when he says, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. That's a terrible, terrible conclusion. Asaph finds himself saying, It's not worth serving God. All my religion, all my faith is foolish if this is the way things are. And yet this is blasphemy that the worldly people believe. But a pious man such as Asaph ought to know better. First came envy and indignation in his life, and then self-pity made its appearance. And finally, he finds himself denying altogether the value of serving the Lord. And now Asaph is the one mocking God, having envied the ungodly. He is molded into their image, their attitude, their sinful speech. And referring to their spiritual descent, the psalmist says in Psalm 73, 2, My feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. And, it, and it's important to see what it, what it was that kept his foot from slipping completely. What was, what was the foothold on which he found traction and from which he began to climb back up. He says in verse 15, If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. And this assessment, it shows that Asaph realizes how ridiculous was his self-pitying attitude. And yet his only concern for the influence he might have on others uh, checks his free fall. And in this, he shows the value of being a part of Christian community how often when we're too stubborn or depressed to care about ourselves, our love for others reigns us in and makes us speak and act in, in a godly manner. If, if we ever think the way that Asaph does, we should follow his example. He waited to report his feelings and his thoughts until he had worked his way out of the difficulty and was able to say, as he does in Psalm 73.1. And, and what, this, what this shows us is that the Bible gives us permission to deal with our emotions in a, in a godly way. That, that means that, that God who sees us, he knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows what is really in the heart of man. He knows what drives us. He knows what motivates us. He knows what we're afraid of. He knows what causes us to be anxious. He, he knows our trigger point. And notice what Asaph does. He doesn't run from the Lord. He's, he's talking, he's openly sharing his burdens before the Lord. He's openly talking about his struggles. Yes, there's some issues with the way in which he's, he's doing that. But the point is, is, rather than staying silent, rather than just pushing down the problem rather than not dealing with it, Asaph is aiming to address his issues. You know, we need this in the body of Christ. We need to take on Sundays, we need to take, rip off the mask and stop playing pretend. We need to stop saying, you know what, I'm, when somebody asks us how I am and you know what, just that, just that other day you were sick 
or or you were not well, or or you had a really difficult day. I, I'm not saying that you go into all the details, but it's okay to say, you know what, brother, you know what, sister, I'm not doing very well today. You know, uh, just the other day, I I had a, I was sick. Uh, I was not doing very well. Um, I, I had a situation with a family member, and you know that could really use your prayers. And would you would you pray? Please pray. Keep this in your prayers. Uh, you know, we need to work this out in in community and and maybe even we need to just realize and and this is this is really really important maybe we just need to realize that you know what i need somebody else to walk alongside of me in the midst of the stuff of life in the in the midst of difficulty you know i can tell you there there are and there still are many situations in my life i i have many uh you know skills and and uh, things over the years that I've learned to deal with uh, especially intense amount of stress and, and problems. But there's also been times in my life, even in the last couple of years, where I had to realize, uh, very quickly I did realize, I realized that I can't do this on my own. I can't, I can't process this kind of intense grief. I, I don't have... I don't have the skills. I don't have the ability to, to handle it. I, I need other people. And this is what Asaph is showing us. We have a great need of Christ and we have a great need for one another. And that need exists because God didn't make us to live in isolation. He made us to, and he saved us too. One of the reasons that he saved us is he saved us to be a part of the body of Christ, over which Paul says he is the head. Jesus is the head of the church. This is why Ephesians 5 is so vital to understand that that Christ is the head over the church. He, he He is the senior pastor over every church. It's his church. It belongs to the Lord. And we belong to him. We, we have been bought at such a price. We have been br- brought from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. The Lord Jesus, as Paul says in Colossians 1, we are united to Christ by faith in his name. We are his and he is ours. But, but we belong in this community under biblically qualified elders. You know, some of you I know listen to this or watch these and you you struggle with this. You struggle to find a church. I know that it's hard, but you need to find not a perfect church because guess what? The moment in which you go to that church, it stopped being perfect because you are, as Martin Luther said, at the same time a saint and a sinner. You, yes, you have been declared not guilty by the righteousness of God, and yet you still have remaining sin that you must continue to repent of and grow. That's why you need the Lord. You need the ongoing work of the grace of God. You need the ongoing help of the Holy Spirit who is sanctifying you through the means of the word. And you need other people speaking in because let's just be honest for just a minute. Just be a minute. Be honest before the Lord and admit you need other people. And you know what? That's okay. In fact, I'll, I'll go so far as to say for you this. 
and then we'll move on. If you're unwilling to admit that you need other people, it might be time to do a sp- evaluation of, of your walk with God. It might be time to go back and to ask yourself a question or several questions. Do you really believe the grace of God? Do you really understand that you are held fast because of Christ and that you have been brought into a glorious kingdom, not of your own doing, but of all of God's grace? And then why wouldn't you admit your need for help? You know, it's, uh, it's easier said than done. You know, um, when my mentor died, it took me three weeks to admit that I needed help. Um, and then I, I said to my wife one day, you know what, I, I think I need some biblical counseling because I feel horrible. I feel devastated all the time. I can't focus. I, I just can't. I can't focus. I can't get the work done that I need. I'm tired all the time. I'm I'm cranky all the time. Life is hard, and that's why we need one another. We need one another. And this is why, by the way, one last thought on this. This is why Titus 2 says we older, older men need to come alongside younger men. And that doesn't mean that if you're in your 40s, you can help those who are in their 30s and 20s and their teens and, and on and on. If you're a lady, do the same uh, with other women, walk alongside of them, do life with them, help them, find out what's happening. And 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 young ladies and and young men, be open to that kind of ministry. We need we need those who have gone through life, who have walked out the truth of the word. Well, we're gonna move on now because there's a lot that I could say about that. But here's some four steps to spiritual recovery that we're gonna see in this text. You know, from the foothold of his spiritual concern for others, Asaph begins his climb back towards a right attitude towards God. And so this psalm is going to show us, as I mentioned, four steps in Asaph's spiritual recovery, which we need to follow when we need to move from self-pity and despair. And the first appears in verses 16 through 17, which says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Now, Here, Asaph gives one of the keys to Christian stability and Christian joy. That is, when we're floundering in our walk with God, when we have started falling because of doubt or discouragement, uh, or or we can no longer remember why we were once so safe and happy as Christians, what enables us to regain our joy in the Lord? Well, the answer Asaph gives is in verse 17 of our text. He says, I went into the sanctuary of God. The psalmist went to church. In his case, he went into the tabernacle. And what he encountered there brought a perspective that he forgot. He was confronted in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle, with a mighty, holy, saving God. And that realization changed everything. How important it is to go to the place of worship. Maybe you're like me and you've encountered many Christians who say, you know what, I'm going to have my church at at Starbucks or the coffee shop. And certainly we can have Bible study. We can have one-on-one discipleship. There there can be a lot of ministry that happens, but there's no sacraments. There's no, even if there is a biblically qualified pastor, that's not a church. And many Christians are sadly living this lone wolf or lone ranger life. 
They've given up. They only listen to celebrity pastors and they refuse to sit under another pastor uh, to be held accountable by God's people. Like we talked about, to, to have people actually speaking into their lives. And when we encounter a Christian who has badly fallen, it's nearly always the case that they have stopped attending worship or at least actively participating in worship. And one of the reasons that we must be constant in worship in order to thrive in our Christian life lies in what we find there. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, People who neglect attendance of the house of God are not only being unscriptural. He says, let me put it bluntly, they are fools, he says. My experience in the ministry has taught me that those who are least regular in their attendance are the ones who are most troubled by problems and perplexity. It is, it is a very foolish Christian who does not attend the sanctuary of God as often as he possibly can. Lloyd-Jones is just summarizing what worship does for us. Worship takes our eyes off of the world and the flesh and the devil. It takes our eyes off of the things going on in our lives. It, it takes us uh, our eyes off the troubles and the confusing data that our minds are dealing with. And it puts them... <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. What worship does is it, it puts our eyes on the Lord. And only then do, only then in worship of the Lord do we get proper focus. And Asaph is saying this, I can make no sense of this. I was miserable. I was confused. I was bitter. But I went into the sanctuary. I went before God. I stopped accusing him. I stopped arguing with the Lord and simply came before the Lord. And when I saw him again, my problems began to resolve themselves. Everything looked differently when I looked to the Lord. One of my mentors says this, and it helpfully illustrates, one of my mentors from high school, I mean, said this, that the Christian life is a life of perspective, and that's, that's what Asaph is coming to understand. Have you ever experienced this new kind of perspective in prayer? You come to God with your petty anger, your self-pity, your self-absorbed attitude, and as you start praying, you realize how ridiculous it all is. You become like Job who questioned God's wisdom, and then God spoke to him from the whirlwind and revealed his majesty, demanding of Job in Job 38.2. Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? And Abbas, Job could only reply, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, as he says in Job 42.5-6. How foolish it can be. How quick to self-pity and depression. And for this very reason, we need to be diligent in our Bible reading and our study of the attributes and the character of God in the saving works of God displayed and revealed in the Word. We need to be regular in prayer. We must often be in the sanctuary present with the people of God on the Lord's day. And these are our only protection against ourselves, against our sin, against our folly, against our weakness. You see, coming into the sanctuary, my point is, is Asaph's first step in spiritual recovery. We too must come before God. Don't try to solve your own problems and your own power and your own sufficiency apart from the Lord. Take them into the presence of God. In the sanctuary is where spiritual recovery begins. And second, what we see in verse 17 of our text, it tells of the immediate effect on Asaph's return to the Lord. 
And then I discerned their end. You see, when Asaph put his eyes on God, his perspective became different. His horizons were enlarged. He noticed something that he had forgotten in his angry descent. Namely, the end always awaits the ungodly. And he elaborates on this in verses 8 through 20, which he says this, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. You see, Asaph had forgotten about the final judgment as we all do. And what a difference this makes in our assessment, the judgment of God. There is a judgment awaiting the end of days. And therefore, although the wicked may be carefree and even prosperous now, Although this is hardly the case in every instance, though they may avoid punishment in this world and and though they may gloat in their violence and crime, there is a day of judgment that they cannot and will not escape. And while the rich man in Jesus' parable may have been too self-absorbed to notice the sufferings of righteous lot, the story of these two men did not end at death. The man of God who suffered in life was blessed in death, while the arrogant rich man suffered in torment. This is the perspective that Asaph regained. You see, our lives are hard. They they are full of many challenges, and we don't always have the answer. You know, I, I have an older brother and his his son. His son was tragically abused over a length, a period of time, which we as a family discovered. And, and this lady, she went to prison for over a decade. Where, where, we could easily ask, where is the Lord in, in that child uh, getting abused and, and even facing for the rest of his life uh, issues with his memory and, and, and other things that, that have affected his life? Where is the Lord? It's easy to ask. It's easy to say, you know what? I know the goodness of God. I know that he is good. I know that he is uh, my help. I know that he'll order everything. But in the midst of those things, we we have to weep. We have to weep at at the injustice uh, of a child being abused, of of children being sex trafficked, of of harm being done by men in marriages, of men looking at pornography and women being enticed by romantic novels and, and sex and the, uh, the rise of alcoholism and, and drug uh, enslavement in our culture. And, and, and the uh, issues go on and on personally and in our world today. And you might wonder, where is the Lord in this? What is the Lord doing? You know, John Piper once said something very profound, and I, I remember when he's I remember him saying this. That the Lord is doing a thousand things, and he meant infinitely, by the way, just to clarify. But he but he meant that the Lord is doing a thousand things all at once, and we might see one or two of those things. The Lord might in, in his providence, he might show us, he might give us some encouragement. It might seem like right now you, you don't have any encouragement in the, in the ministry, in the work that God is giving you in the church. It, it might seem 
if you're writing, it might seem like right now you're not getting any feedback on your articles or very many people are viewing it. It might seem right now that not very many people are listening to your podcast if you podcast. It might seem right now, you know, you're not getting that promotion at your job and you work hard and you do it all to the glory of God and with excellence. And it, and it can seem, but but you see other people, they their numbers are climbing in their blog and their podcasts and they're they're up in the up on the top of the charts on Amazon and on their books and uh, that that person that you know isn't walking with the Lord is getting a promotion and and if, if you don't have kids uh, you see other people who aren't walking with the Lord and and you're walking with the Lord and and you see that that they're having kids and you're not able to and what are we supposed to do about this? What are we supposed to do about this? What we need to do is we need to remember the Lord. We need to remember the goodness of our God. We need to remember that that just because that's happening in that person's life, that, that's in the providence of God. What's happening right now is in the providence of God. That doesn't mean that that the evil is is a pleasing to the Lord. It, it isn't pleasing to the Lord. It doesn't mean that the Lord won't ultimately judge that. Maybe maybe even he'll bring judgment at a later time in, in life. But the point is, is at the end of days, there will be judgment. Every single non-saved person will stand before the judgment seat of God, and they will give an account for their rejection of Christ, and they will be sent to hell, a place of unrelenting, unending punishment. That is why as Christians, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are ambassadors of God. We are to make an appeal to men to be reconciled to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. That is, if you repent and believe, even right now, in this very moment, God might be drawing you to himself. He might be calling you to himself. The question is, are you going to respond to his calling, to his summons, to repent, to believe, and to put your hope and trust in Christ alone. See, the Christian having peace with God has ceaseless conflict in this life, but none of a Christian's struggles should make us envy people who have what we don't have. That's because what they need, what we need, is to remember the Lord. We need to remember the goodness of God. We need to remember who the Lord is and what He has done. And this helps us as we read Psalm 73 and verse 18 says, Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. Verse 20 says, Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. That is, worldly and sinful happiness has no more security or substance than a dream that allures us in our sleep. And so it is for all boastful sinners. Like Haman's situation in the book of Esther, the gallows that the ungodly erect will one day become the instrument of their own demise. Like a house built on a fault line, all happiness and sin rests on the brink of woe. Do you realize this? Instead of envy, do you look on the mocking of the arrogant unbelievers and pity them for their laughter? Do you mourn over the calamity of their sin? You should. Not being able to speak uh, to these, to people that may have more or less. We need to realize that our perspective as Christians need to be centered on God. 
from an understanding of life gained from the word of God, only then are we able to see things in our lives rightly and help people through the lens of the word of God. It is then simply impossible for us to envy the ungodly. And so instead of complaining about our troubles, we become more fervent in prayer, more diligent in our witness, and more sober in our lives. Psalm 37, 1-2 says this, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. And the third step in Asaph's recovery came when he applied these truths to himself. Earlier in his depressed state, he complained about how little he got for his righteousness. And now he realizes that everything he was thinking about other people is true of himself. In verses 21 through 22, he says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you, he says. And if the wicked were foolish and brute beasts before God, the same was no less true of Asaph in his accusations and his discontentment. Likewise, it is necessary for our spiritual well-being that we become aware of our remaining and dwelling sin, of our guilt, of our unworthiness before the Lord. Earlier, I discussed how worship is uh, can be a, a frequency in worship, I mean, can be a bar- spiritual barometer. But here is another point I want to make. If we are boastful, if we're arrogant before God, then we are surely far from the Lord. C.S. Lewis says this, Whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good above all, that, that we are better than somebody else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. Now, this attitude of self-abasement is not morbid self-loathing. It's a healthy realism about our sin in the presence of the holiness of God. It is borne out in the Bible whenever people really are brought to see God. They, they see themselves as naked and dirty like Adam and Eve after their sin, needing to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone. Or like Peter, they respond to the awareness of God's presence in the way that Peter spoke when he perceived the deity of Christ. Christ in Luke 5 8 which says depart from me for I am a sinful man O Lord and if you are disappointed with what God is providing for you then I assure you that you will fail to appreciate your own sin and guilt therefore we we should all pray for a fresh remembrance of our sin Matthew 5 3 says blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven Jesus says and so the first step to recovery is to come before God and worship. The second step is we must realize the end that awaits the ungodly. And third, we need to also notice that this is precisely our own predicament apart from Christ alone. And this leads to the fourth step of our spiritual recovery, which is a fresh appreciation of the blessings we enjoy from the unmerited favor of God. And when Asaph realizes that he himself is among the wicked, uh, that he himself is among the wicked, deserving judgment and destruction like the others. He remembers with joy the blessings that he has previously despised in verses 23 through 24, which say this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you receive. you will receive me to glory. How wonderful it is, he says, 
though I have been uh, such a sinner, and he's, he's saying in essence that God is nonetheless with me. He holds me in his hands. He guides me in this life. Despite all that I've done, all that I've left undone, there is glory ahead in which God is taking me to. You see, Asaph here has arrived at salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Scripture's teaching that God has freely provided to sinners the only way for their salvation. God provides grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Each of us is a foolish, a brutish beast before God. Our lives in sin are built on the fault line of a coming doom, but God sent his Son to save us to fulfilling the the demands of the law on our behalf, weaving by his life a garment of righteousness for us to wear, and then bearing the punishment of our sins on the cross. Through faith alone and Christ alone, God offers us the benefits of Christ's great saving work. You see, this same doctrine that offered us salvation in the first place, salvation by grace alone, it also preserves the Christian from discontentment. Why are you unhappy today? Because you think that you deserve something that you don't. And so you want it more than God. And yet, in truth, the thing that you deserve and do not get is God's judgment for your sins. And while deserving only judgment from God, you are instead receiving an inheritance of eternal life through the Lord Jesus. Your great spiritual blessings were gained at the infinite cost to God whom you are so prone to resent. And the psalmist realizes this great gospel truth, and it leads him upward to recovery. God has saved us at the cost of his precious son's blood. He now sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts that we might have fellowship with the Lord. God has given the light of his word to guide us and a sure hope of glory that awaits us. How can we complain? How can we harbor discontentment towards such a Lord and Savior? That is to say that whatever trials, whatever disappointments we now endure, they come with a promise of glory ahead. In the light, we see this sorrow, sorrows as an instrument that God is using to wean us from the idols of this world and to draw our hearts to him. Well, let's wrap up our time together today, considering my portion forever. And it's remarkable that within this one psalm, we find one of the lowest expressions of unbelief and one of the highest expressions of spiritual devotion. Having descended into the pit of depression, Asaph made a horrible statement. He he tells the same devilish lie that turned the paradise into a hell and blinds so many people today when he says in verse 13 that trusting God is vain. That is, unbelief says that God doesn't matter, or worse, that God is the one we must escape if we want to be happy. Well, exactly opposite to this lie is a great truth that forms the apex of faith. And we see it in our text in verses 25 through 26, the glorious height to which Asaph now climbs. He proclaims that nothing else matters if we have God, because he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? asked the psalmist. And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, both of these statements, one despising God and the other glorifying God, they both come from the same man in the same psalm, and this proves the importance of a biblically shaped mind. The same man that finds himself either in the pit or on the heights, either in hell or in heaven, all depending on the way he allows himself to think. 
In fact, verses 25 through 26 are so profound that uh, we can't even get into them. But it's safe to say, I mean, in any depth, but it's safe to say and to reflect that our present happiness cannot and will not be found in anything of this world, not in money, not in achievement, not in romance, not in pleasure. Only God can fill our hearts. This is a psalmist point when he says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That is, if we have the Lord, we have all that we really need. How much more must this be true for our eternal destiny? And this much is certain. He says in verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail. Indeed, they may certainly will. This body that I serve and feed and pamper is not a ship that will sail me safely into harbor. But in all that it lacks, in all that this world lacks, God abounds. That's because the psalmist says, God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And when I consider this, when we consider this, why would I or you place anything before our relationship to God? Why, why would you or I ever complain if all that we have is the Lord ultimately? See, God is what we really need and he is enough. I mentioned earlier Burrow's book on the rare jewel of Christian contentment. Here's what Burrow concludes, and it's in line with what we've been talking about today. He says, It is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make my peace with God. It is not necessary that I should live a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have pardon of my sin. It is not necessary that I should have honor and preference, but it is necessary that I should have God as my portion and have my part in Jesus Christ. It is necessary that my soul should be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. The other things are pretty fine indeed, and I should be glad if God works uh, God would give me them a, a fine house and income and clothes and advancement for my wife and children. These are comfortable things, but they are not necessary things. I may have these and yet perish forever, but the other is absolutely necessary. This is quite clearly the position to which the psalmist arrived. And then he concludes with a great realization and a firm resolution in verses 27 through 28, which says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. This is what heaven is, to be with God. And it is something that we need not wait to enjoy. If we share Asaph's need to be near to God, we will concern ourselves far less with the things of this world and far more with the things of God. Faith, holiness, service to God are witness to the Lord and to the world. And in these things, we will find not merely a present contentment, but we'll find a joy that will never end and a glory that will never fade. Well, friends, you know, life, as, I, as we've been talking about, life is hard, right? We can all admit that. We all know that there are times when we are tempted to despair, where we're tempted to discouragement, where we're tempted, Lord, uh, to wander, and we feel it as that great hymn says. And yeah, what a psalm like this does is it, is it reorients our perspective. It challenges our materialistic comforts to, to see that is that where our identity really lies? Is that where your identity really lies? Does your meaning and your value and worth reside in your marriage, your ministry, even in some church service or in some performance that you're doing for God, something that you think is of of supreme importance? 
And what I want to say is, is only God is sufficient. He is sufficient in and of himself. And that means that he is more than sufficient for you in every single way. And what a savior we have. He is sufficient. And he has been revealed in the word of God. And he is enough. He always will be enough. And so you can look to the Lord in the midst of the hard valleys, those hard challenges. And and you can say, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. I I don't have, even if I have the skill and the talent and the education and and the experience in counseling, it's okay to admit, I, I don't have this figured out. It takes a mature Christian to realize this. It takes a humble Christian, one who sees themselves in need of the grace of God that has saved them and is sanctifying them through the present ministry of the Holy Spirit, through the means of grace. This is, we all need this. Contentment is hard. It is a hard path. And Paul learned this. He says in Philippians 4, he learned this. He learned these truths. He says in Philippians 4, 11, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. That's an amazing statement because Paul Paul went through a lot in his life. And maybe like you, and yet he's not looking away from the Lord. He's not casting doubt on the Lord. He's saying, I learned whatever situation I am to be content. That is, as Burroughs says, Contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of mind which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposition in every condition. Let's pray. Lord, um, man, what a what a what a text that we have looked at today. And there there is so much, Lord, um, if we're all honest before you right now. There is so much that we could say we struggle with when it comes to contempt. We struggle to, to trust you with our money. We, we struggle to trust you in our job. We, we struggle to trust you in the midst of maybe relational, marital issues, and, and on and on we could go. We, we struggle to find you to be of supreme value and worth. We, we struggle to to not cheapen the grace of God, but but to come and see, as Bonhoeffer said, that the grace of God is, is costly. It cost the Son of God and the Son of Man his life in our place, the blood that is of infinite value and of infinite worth. And yet we so often cheapen it. We, and we so often, Lord, say, I know, I know, I get it. Lord, Lord, unmask our pride Help us to see our great need of the Savior. No matter how long we have walked with you, no matter how far we have journeyed, no matter how much experience we have in ministry or education or in whatever field it is, Lord, our need is of you. Our confidence is in you. Our boast is in you. Our identity rests in you alone who works all things according to the counsel of your will for your glory and for the good of your people. Well, Lord, we love you. Help us, Lord, in the midst of our unbelief to walk with you and to trust you and to prize you and to treasure you above all. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.
Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.